I think I'm having an art attack. All right, y'all. Welcome to our 100th episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Dastin, and myself, Justin Bua. And today we are talking about the intersection of hip-hop and art. Um, and before we launch into that, I just wanted to dissect the history of hip-hop a little bit because, you know, hip-hop, much like breakdancing, was a manufactured term by mainstream media. Uh, it was something that was really created primarily in wild style um, and really inter internationally projected and broadcasted into the universe with Beat Street, which I was in, by the way. I was in Beat Street. I starred as an extra, but, um, <laughs> but I was in Beat Street. I was in the whole Roxy scene, uh, breaking and popping. But it was really not a... It wasn't really necessarily the elements. Everybody had their own element you know like the b-boys which was primarily my world was b-boying and graffiti and then there was the port just for the everybody who doesn't know the four elements of hip-hop are b-boying emceeing djing and graph writing those are the four elements but the graffiti scene in particular was very augmented from the rest of the world because graffiti writers and a lot of them i knew who were my elder statesmen in new york city they came from a different culture. They came from the punk rock, from the rock and roll world. And unlike B-boys, who I think were primarily African-American, Puerto Rican, Dominican, the DJs, same. The MCs, primarily African-American. The graffiti writers, there was a lot of Jews. There was a lot of uh, uh, Italian kids. There was a lot of Irish kids. There was a lot of white kids from that culture. Because those kids came from rock and roll, punk rock. They were writing, you know, with people of, of color, but, the, but back then, it was really different. Now, a lot of people don't know that. So it was really different cultures that had a commonality of displaced kids who came from primarily poverty-stricken environments. You know, uh, so I just wanted everybody to, to know that so that there is a, there is a, there is a distinction between all of those elements, even though the mainstream put it together and then we all kind of were together. In fact, in my neighborhood, you had to do all of the elements to just be recognized. Like I was a beatboxer. I was an MC, not gonna do that. You know, I wasn't a DJ, but I was a graph writer. So like culturally, you had to be a Renaissance artist to be in the scene because at any given time, you could be in a cypher, you could have to hold the beat. You know, you had, to, you had to be the one who was emceeing or you had to be the one who was, who was doing graffiti. So we did all styles, as it was called. And that's such an incredible zoomed-in perspective. And I really think it's remarkable for all of us to get to hear what it was like to be a part of this scene at the time that it happened. And then zooming out a little bit and talking about the history. So you mentioned that a lot of people who are in these four arms of hip hop, that they came from disenfranchised communities. And I think really that was sparked by the conservative administration that Reagan was perpetuating. And this is happening in the 80s and with NEA funding, a lot of controversies started to boil up to the surface regarding art. And I think that hip hop emerged as this antidote to this conservative climate that they were feeling stifled by. And 
Hip-hop initially in the 80s was much more about dance music, and the most syncopated part of any song would be turned into a loop. And the, the hope, the, the purpose of this was to get people to move, to dance, and then that was really informative for these be humans, be boys and be girls, and then in the 90s, hip-hop, really the culture of it, took a pivot and then it became more politicized. And that's when groups like Public Enemy on the East Coast and NWA on the West Coast, they're really starting to problematize police brutality. And that's when the song F the Police comes out. And so initially, graffiti really was more of this just joyful experience of your body and also experience of your throat if you are a freestyle rapper and of your hand if you're a graffiti writer. And then the content started to creep in. And I see that aligned with the graffiti that was being produced at the time because graffiti in the 80s was more about authentication of self. People like Taki183 were just writing their name all over the place, going all city. And the messages were not too politicized. It was more about, I was here, I scaled this billboard, I was able to achieve this location. And then in the 90s, that's when the politics started to enter into the graffiti world in a pretty profound way. And we have writers like Sabre doing this aggressive, incredible act of the world's largest piece of wild style graffiti along the LA River. So I love how they're their concurrent themes, the sounds and also the visual markings. And that to me, as a recent hip hop fan, that's been most interesting is just the impact of marks and how those marks can either be a visual nature or those marks can be more of an emotional one if you really listen to the, uh, the content of the lyrics. And getting back to uh, the early days, before the early days, you know, I just want to say that you have to realize, this is a weird thing, this is the only, which, hip-hop has an annual spending power of like a trillion dollars now. It's permeated, it's pop culture, it's everything, it's fashion, it's the way you talk, it's the way you walk, it's the way you dress, it's the way you think. But the crazy thing is, this whole culture, whether it was DJing, MCing, b-boying, graph writing, was started by kids. These were children. Children started all these movements. There wasn't one person in the culture besides, I was gonna say Fab Five Freddy, whatever, but he was even a child. All of these people who we think about, these old school, these OGs, we call them now, they were kids. They started this movement. Now, why did that happen? Because in the 70s, in these poverty-stricken areas, the West, South Bronx, you had gangs like the Black Spades, which became the mighty Zulu nation with Africa Bambata. You had the Javelins, you had Latin Kings, you had all of these gangs that were running drugs, crime, all of the money, and all the protection. The children, the younger brothers, after a while, they said, fuck this. You know, this is not where we want to go. We want to we plug into something positive. That's where hip-hop came out of. That's why you see the early aggression with breaking. When you see top rocking, you see two kids facing off. There's so much aggression happening. Now, that is really a gang fight manifesting in a dance-like form. So with graffiti too, it was a hostile environment. It was like, we wanna take over. We're not allowed into public space. We're not allowed into the museums. Fuck that. We're gonna go up, we're gonna get up, we're gonna go all city, and we're gonna be broadcast to the world 
on these giant steel worms. That's when we went to the, to the yards. That's when we went to the tunnels, the Freedom Tunnels. I've been to the Freedom Tunnel, scary. Scary there. Now, I think about it, I would never go. And the yards that I've been to too, on 242nd Street that I used to climb into as a kid, would never go now. I used to be Puerto Rican, now I'm a Jew. I'm a, I'm a, you know what I mean? I'm a Puerto Rican Jew, but like I was way more Puerto Rican back then. I was like, yeah, whatever, man. Yo, I'm gonna do this, you know what I'm saying? Dame el cuchillo, bro. Now I'm like, you know, but it's, 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 it's frightening, it's, it's, it's dangerous. But in the yards, it was really crazy because you would do anything, you would risk your life so that people can see your work. That is a very weird thing. I mean, you gotta think about who's doing that. Michelangelo, he's upside down on scaffolding, but he's protected, you know, it's, com it's not, not comfortable, but it's, it's a lot sanctioned. more- Yeah, it's sanctioned. Like Pope Julius II is like, yeah, you got this. There was no Pope Julius II with these kids. It was just a free-for-all. So you, you have to understand, this is coming from a renegade mindset that was rife because like you said, you had Reaganomics, you had, uh, you had so much like hopelessness that kids wanted to do something positive. And you find that now today. I look at kids today, whether you love, I hate music today, everyone's like, I just can't stand this music. But if you really think about what's going on in the subculture, you look at the house dancing right now, you look at some of the street art right now, it's another level. If your mind is open to that, if you're not ossified and all like, you know, just like, I'm turned off by that. But I'm telling you, like, the, the kids are always bringing it, but kids brought this culture to the world. It's crazy. It wasn't until Wild Style, Style Wars with Henry Chalfant, Beat Street with Harry Belafonte, right? All of these people, all of these celebrities, all of these A-listers took the culture and then broadcast that to the world. It's also interesting to see how the hip-hop culture has transmutated from the 90s onwards because now I think some of these artists are collaborating in really interesting, unexpected spaces. And there's a DJ named DJ Spooky who's international and he does a lot of stuff with classical groups. And I've just really gotten into this song by James Blake and your buddy RZA and just exploring all these different spaces. And to me, that is rooted in the intentionality of postmodernism because the concept of modernism is so much about something that's rarefied and completely self-contained. And then in a postmodern dialogue, it's all of these different factors that are contributing to something that's really beautiful and profound and also cross disciplines. And so with hip hop, we have the four arms that Justin mentioned, but also knowledge, I think, is a fifth. And now we're getting into other styles of art. And so it's really pervasive and also approaching this dialogue of public art and how work can really be amplified when it's in a public space and not in this perfect, safe, contained environment. So that would be the difference between Michelangelo who was not a modernist, but that, that kind of scaffolding is a modernist agenda versus a hip hop artist or a graffiti writer who's seeing a train as his or her canvas. And that is so postmodern. And so for me, that is the way that I enter into hip hop. And I just think that it is the zeitgeist activating all sorts of sectors of society. And it's really just incredible to see what has happened in these recent years. Yeah, you know, I, I was really, when I grew up, I saw all of these crazy work. My, my grandfather and my mom were, were collecting, they were broke, but they were collecting prints and posters 
of like Katie Kollwitz, who was a great German expressionist, and uh, a lot of Dutch artists, Rembrandt, uh, Bruegel the Elder, um, just a lot of artists that were very soulful and emotional. Van Gogh, obviously. But when I grew up, I grew up next to Bill Blast mural in Rocksteady Park. I saw Futura 2000. I saw Dondi. You know, I saw the early beginnings of Tracy 168. Um, Cope, all of these guys were in my neighborhood. So to me, my world collided at an early age where I understood the importance of a classical education. Your stepfather was just telling me how important that was. Fundamentals, like, remember? Are you Fundamentals. At my stepfather? Yeah. <laughs> Fundamentals. Um, but I also knew the importance of hip hop. So, so I wasn't the first person doing characters with graffiti cans, I was the first artist to paint the narratives in a classical way. So I was the first artist to paint a DJ, an MC, a b-boy, and a graph writer in a classical sense. And then I was lucky enough to be able to get it into the consciousness of America by, because I was in every poster shop and every Target and every Bed Bath & Beyond, Burlington Coat Factory, Prince Plus, et cetera, and so on. <laughs> My shit was omnipresent. All the hip places, but I, but I, I rode- hip hop places. Yeah, all the hip hop places, but I rode the wave. I got lucky. It was like, what's selling? This DJ is selling. Shit, let's sell it. And it was that, that's how it went. So my DJs actually sold 13 million prints. Um, but I want, thank you. Would you guys do that if it was like, I'm worth $28 million? <laughs> no one be like, fuck him. He isn't. So, but I wanted to tell you guys something that I discovered, Lizzie. I'm going to tell you a secret. During just doing no research for this, but as I was thinking about it, high on my couch, um, I said, wh I said why, why did I do the things that I did? And I realized that everybody who's my age or in that world watched a certain TV show. And that certain TV show, 25% of all American households watched it. And it was Good Times with JJ. Y'all remember Good Times, which was, you probably didn't know this, but it was a spinoff of Maud, but nobody knew that. A spinoff of Maud, it was Good Times. And JJ was a painter, and he painted this painting called Sugar Shack, which was really painted by Ernie Barnes. And this is the painting. This painting was broadcast into 25% of American households. It was also the cover of Marvin Gaye's album. Now, whether I knew it or not, I was fucking influenced by it. Like, this hit me. As a kid, I just looked at my mom like, yo, what? Like, that you could have people of color dancing, elongated in a manneristic style, and this is relevant and important. This, this, so I thought everybody from this culture of graffiti had to watch that. Because my boy Jason was like, well, how many Puerto Ricans and, and black people you think watch it? I said, 100%. How many white people? Well, like one out of every six. You know what I mean? But still, but still, you have to understand there's five channels. Five channels every time they show the show, between 73 and 79, which it was airing, everybody saw the long pan. And, and you know about TV shows because her grandfather created I Dream of Jeannie and Heart to Heart and a bajillion other things. And he was one of the greatest writers ever of that time. So you understand the early influence of I Dream of Jeannie, the early influence of Good Times was out of this, out of this world when I knew that this painting was possible and that you could go like, wow, I could paint like, you know, my brothers and sisters, like the Puerto Ricans from the block, you know what I mean, whoever. And then all of a sudden, 
I'm doing the things I'm doing and the kids are doing the things that they're doing. I swear to God, whether they knew it or not, they were influenced by this painting. Much like kids today were influenced by my DJ painting, whether they like to influence it. You know what I mean? Because it's just out there in the universe, in the collected unconscious of kids. And so I feel like that really changed my way of thinking. You know, and I know Ernie Barnes was influenced by the Harlem Renaissance and by Thomas Hart Benton. And you want to go back to mannerists like El Greco and Andrea del Sarto, all of these mannerists. Historically, sure he was. But I feel like that painting, because it was on TV, broadcast into our mind, we called it the boob tube, right? Because we were just watching it. So I was just soaking that, sh I was soaking it in. I was soaking it in. And I feel like uh, that piece is not really, everyone knows that piece. Everyone references that piece, but I don't think people realize because it was on television was the platform, how influenced a generation of hip hop heads were by this one piece. And I don't think Ernie Barnes was a nice person, by the way, either. That Nick. is so smart, and I'm so glad that you shared that with us. And when as Lizzie says it's smart, then it's good. No, that this was is really good. smart. This that was great. And I always try to articulate or disentangle the history of why things happen when they do. And for instance, why did photography, why was it invented or popularized in the 1830s and not the 1820s? Why would it have been not as culturally relevant in the 1840s? And so with hip hop, I always just kind of assumed that it was the politicized nature of Reaganomics in the United States. But maybe it's also because of this image and popular culture. And especially with the proliferation of television and the limited number of shows, this had to have just infiltrated that subconscious. And so maybe it's kind of a dialogue between politics and something that's a little bit more culturally accessible. So that really amplified my I mean, it was a, it, it's, look, it's all a theory and, and 2020 hindsight will tell the story, but I don't really feel there's anybody telling the story. And I feel like that, that when I looked, I saw that, I thought about it, I looked it up, I researched it and I went, I had an aha moment. Um, and it wasn't just because I was stoned, because I wasn't <laughs> at all. Well, but you know I, what? Theories plus time, they equal history. So I think that you just mm. made it right there. So I think that's really cool. And I am glad that you also introduced a discussion about your own work in the hip hop space. And maybe we can go back to that a little bit and okay. then round it out with how hip hop is manifested today in the contemporary scene, what's going on on the streets, just how hip hop is part of that kind of a world. So what inspired you to paint the types of people that you did within the classicized manner of your, your uh, paintings of that design? Well, I always knew that street art, in my opinion, or, or just the, ca the characters in my neighborhood, I started out painting a lot of the marginalized and disenfranchised people. I lived next to two welfare hotels on my block. I had 200 in my neighborhood. Um, you know, my mom was... She, my, my dad left early and, and I was a, a latchkey kid. My mom had to work two jobs. She barely had enough money to pay for sneakers. I know that because I read a letter she sent to my bum dad. My dad was a very famous uh, soap star, by the way. He was a huge soap star on a time when there was only four channels. So my father was one of the most famous people alive. He was this guy who was on a soap called Love of Life. And Love of Life was huge uh, during the time. So he's very famous. I only met him a handful of times. Um, so my mom basically raised me by herself on, on a shoestring salary, 
And uh, because of that, I hung out and I drew a lot on the stoops because I, I was always keeping my brain occupied. And I knew that I had to have a skill to survive. You know what I mean? It's just one of those things. So I started painting these people, a lot of people who were, you know, who I thought were normal because I was a kid. I didn't realize later they were like murderers and pimps. And, <laughs> you know, like they were selling heroin while I was just hanging out with them. And I was like, what's up, Poppy? They're like, yo, what's up? So it was... Um, that's just how it was uh, in my neighborhood. It was, it was really crazy. And, and I wanted to really paint these people as I got older when I had the skill set. I always knew it was important. I'm not delusional. And I knew that, oh, I need a skill set to be able to articulate my visions more eloquently in a visual way. So I got a very classical education. I went to high school music performing arts, which was an art high school. And then I went to art center, which at that time was considered the Harvard of art schools. Um, and I just trained. I wasn't ever the best draftsman. I became better and better and better, and I knew that the importance of figure drawing and, and classical studies, to me, for what I wanted to do, were really important. Because if I wanted to paint, you know, like 1981, which is over there, the, that nascent moment where you have the uh, backspin turn into the windmill, right, when Crazy Lakes took flight in 1981, I knew that if I really wanted to understand edge and atmosphere, I had to paint from life. I had to paint a la plein air. I had to draw from life. I had to, I had to do all the necessary things and put in all of the hard work that I didn't have as a child. That a lot of kids, you know, came to Art Center with an amazing skill set already, you know, and I didn't have that. So I had to work hard at everything. If people say, oh my God, you have such a God-given talent. No, I work hard. Like, I don't, like, every, yeah, it may seem that way now, because I draw with two hands, you know what I'm saying? But, um, but it's not. It's all hard work. It's all hard work and dedication. And I look at artists historically like Rembrandt, and I think Rembrandt, I feel like I see the struggle in his work. There are definitely painters like John Singer Sargent, just like there's composers and musicians like Mozart, who are just really crazy, weird, and they have that. Picasso was like that, too. But I think most artists are not, and I think they really have to work uh, hard at anything you want to be good at. You got to go through the sweat equity, and so, you know, and that's what I did. And I became, I believe, you know, if you're gonna sit next to me in a drawing class, you better be fucking good, because I could draw. You know what I mean? That's the level that I wanted to get to, and that's the level that I got to. And I think that your schema was pretty propulsive to artists who are working today, like Kahinda Wiley painting hip-hop figures, but in a very classicized manner. And I wonder if you were a conscious uh, predecessor for, for work that he continues to produce. He's the guy who did the Obama portrait, portrait of Barack Obama. I wish I had his money, and then I would be stoked. <laughs> well, this is a good time. Let's talk about a couple of figures who are really synthesizing hip-hop in their work today. Mm -hmm. And there are two that I wanted to talk about. One is a, an urban contemporary artist named Bisco Smith, and he does a lot of work in LA, also is based in New York, so he has a bi-coastal presence. And he started out as a freestyle rapper. And that helped him to hone in this ability to just turn off his conscious mind, almost in a way that the Surrealists did. There's this very famous Salvador Dali film that starts with an image of a woman whose eye is sliced by a razor. And even though that's jarring and quite the provocation, I think that it sets up what we're supposed to take when we see persistence of memory, where only when you turn off your rational brain can you truly start to see. And when you're trying to analyze what's in front of you, you're not fully present in the moment. And so Bisco 
through his relationship with freestyle rap, was able to do that. It's almost this meditative exploration of the self where he would just freestyle, not having any idea what the parameters of the, the battle were. And then he parlayed that, that vocal way of communicating into one with his hands, this physical mark making. And the work that he does now, it looks like it's non-objective. You would see it and think it's just a bunch of doodles, but actually, everything is text. And he approaches each surface, whether it be an outside wall or a physical canvas, not really knowing what he's gonna say. And he often produces through this lens of gratitude. He's a really positive guy, which goes back to the roots of graffiti, which was much more about positivity and inclusion than any sort of, of aggressive intent. So the work is all black and white, very simplistic, but also very, very elegant. And hip hop is a huge factor in the design that he has, has really um, produced. And I think does better than anybody I've ever seen. You know, and speaking of design, I want to take a moment to acknowledge how influential hip hop designs have been historically. Like if we look, a show of hands for everybody that knows Public Enemy's logo, you know what I mean? Where you see the scope with the B-boy figure in it, and that was designed by Chuck D himself, who was a student of architecture at college. People don't know that. Uh, the Run DMC logo, you know what I mean? The, how many times has everyone taken that in the MMA world or whatever world, run MMA, run blah, 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 run blah, blah, blah. I mean, that was developed in-house at Island Records uh, by a woman, Susan Nash, I think. But those, those images are now so pervasive, people don't even understand the history of where those are from anymore. So you take like a Run DMC logo, uh, Chuck D's Public Enemy logo, you know, the Beastie Boy logo, which the initial designs were done by my boy Cy Adams, you know, and you got stuff that it, only dreams are made of, you know, the things that are really legendary and iconic and pervasive throughout history. So they've transcended the hip hop space and they've gone into pop cultural space. And you see that and you know that because there's all these iterations and adaptations of the culture and they're used everywhere. They're omnipresent, you know? Much like the DJ is, I feel like some of these graphic images, a lot, a lot which were designed by Cy Adams uh, and Hayes, I think Hayes did Check Your Head and that was just graffiti, you know what I mean? And it, now it's just like, damn, you, it's in my consciousness. You know, it lives there. And I think it lives in all of our collected consciousness. No, I agree. And I'm glad that you brought up Chuck D because that kind of parlays into the second contemporary group that's synthesizing hip hop into their work. And Chuck D was quoted in the 90s as saying that hip hop for black people was CNN. And so I think that it was this channel, this disseminator of news. And I think that's another really important element of hip hop is that it opened up real authentic conversations for people who felt like they were marginalized in mainstream media. And this politically active art collective called Indecline, they do a lot of stuff about police brutality and shootings, and especially of African-American communities. And then they edit the videos with hip-hop music. And so we have the literalized version of hip-hop with the tracks in the background. They actually did this one billboard that just said, F the police. And then the track for that was 
was shockingly F the police. Lizzie, by the way, never curses. I don't know if you know this, but she's never cursed in her life. She's probably the only human on planet Earth that has never cursed. Well, I've cursed, just not that particular word. Ever. Yeah, ever. It's weird. Yeah, it's I mean, really it's cool. Weird. It's amazing. It's amazing. But it's, it's, I know, it's, it's very it's weird. strange. It's OK. It's cool. But another project that Indecline did, which I think is just so beautiful, and maybe some of you have seen it, is that they took empty stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And instead of where the name of the celebrity would be, they put a name of somebody who was killed because of police brutality. So like Trayvon mm. Martin and a whole host of just people who were wrongfully killed. And that, I think, is such a wonderful confrontation because in our culture, and especially in Los Angeles, we valorize and glamorize celebrities, and that's where we place our value. And Indecline was kind of subverting that through a corrective example of saying, this is the news. This is really who you should be paying attention to. And so I thought that was, that was a very successful conversion for them. And then another one that they did was in Oakland where people experiencing homelessness, it's just the population is so large. And they took down all of these billboards that related to being a homeowner or something about central heating, things that are not available to this community. They would liberate the billboard, which is a fancy academic way of saying stole billboards. And they refashioned them into tents for people in this specific Oakland community under a bridge where a lot of, a lot of these people were killed by reckless cars just driving really quickly under the bridge. And it was very cold. It was very dangerous. And so Indecline produced these homes for them. And billboards are so well insulated. And so it actually ended up... Uh, sparking systemic change and those people were relocated into repurposed these um, industrial spaces that were turned into housing for for the homeless you know I there are so many important iconic artists today uh, that there's really too many to name but I we're going back to the Sugar Shack painting by Ernie Barnes that was in good times, you know, there are other artists also who have carried that tradition in a manneristic way, like Kadir Nelson, like Frank Morrison, uh, myself, and a, and a host of others. I just think it's important to, you know, think about these names. You don't have to look it up now, obviously, but when you get, when you get home, just look at these people because they're kind of carrying the torch uh, of the culture. And now, with the fragmentation of hip-hop artistically and in terms of art history, we don't even know what 2020 hindsight will illuminate for us in the future. Uh, there are so many interesting things and factions going on, so many cool artists, and old-school artists who are still doing great work, like Futura 2000, um, and Mir One, and dare I say, and be mainstream Shepherd Ferry and Banksy. <laughs> but, you know, they really are. They're doing, they're taking the artistic side of hip-hop and they're really able to bring it into a much more intellectual realm in the art world. And clearly, as Lizzie will tell you, being at Christie's or getting a degree from there, there's also an incredible co-option of that world of this world. You see what I'm saying? A lot of co-option monetarily, economically, and ultimately spiritually of some of the art and artists that are being commodified. And 
you might want to talk about that a little bit, what's going on in that culture. But that's, that, that's the way it is. But, and it's great if you're an artist like Cause. To me, Cause, you guys know Cause, the artist Cause? He has a really kind of perfect career because he's able to walk the line between, he's a real legit graph writer like from the culture, but then he's also able to walk the line of the Christie's world, the 3D world. I mean, in my mind, I look at his career and I'm like, wow, it's perfect. But if you look at these people who have had these careers, like Shepard, like Cause, like Retina, like Banksy, they're always a collective. Even though you just think of them as individuals, they're always a collective. Which I don't have a problem with at all. I know I you just, don't. Yeah. Because if you're transparent about your process, then I'm totally fine with that. But, but I don't know if everybody's transparent or I don't know how public it is. We know Jeff Koons has a collective because we get insight into, hey, welcome to my studio. We could zoom into Jeff Koons' world. But do we know that these other artists are collectives? It's not broadcast. I think you know and I know, but I don't know if the average person necessarily knows it. A lot of these are not individuals making art. They're teams of people making art. And to me, ultimately, I don't think that matters because it doesn't denigrate the concept of what they're producing. And I always champion concept over process. And so if 500 people make a work, that's fine with me. There's this minimalist artist named Saul LeWitt, and he will just sell the blueprint of his work. He, well, he's passed away now, but he never touched a pencil to a surface. Right. He would just sell you how to do it, and then other people would fabricate. And Duchamp, the creator, haha, that's a hypocritical word, but the first person to really use found objects in his design, he didn't make a toilet out of porcelain and some kind of cast. He bought a pre-existing object and then reconcepted it. And so for me, this idea of a collective producing something or the mark of a lone genius artist, I just think that we've kind of moved past that and that there's space for everything so long as there's transparency and so long as most significantly there is real purpose in the design. I will disagree with her. Uh, I, I think that if you are Peter Paul Rubens and you have an atelier where you're teaching your students, you know, you got your guy who's painting the lion, the guy who's painting the angels, the guy who's painting the mountains. I feel like that's a different story. But if you get a Jeff Koons and everybody's doing the work for you, to me, as, as a collector of art and an art enthusiast and an artist myself, I don't really like anyone touching my shit. You know what I mean? Like that, but, that's, but that's how I am. If, if my collector gets my work, I want them to know like this has the DNA of me in there. And I understand what you're saying. And especially like during the days of Peter Paul Rubens or even Rembrandt, you look at Rembrandt's work, you know, Rembrandt had an atelier, he had a school of students under him, but they were taught by him. So it's a little, it's a little different for me. And we could agree to disagree yeah, because I become much more, it. yeah, because I've been, become much more open to it. But there's just a lot of people that annoy me who can't do shit and have other people that can. And that's the bottom line. And then they're coming out in the world like, oh, look at this. And by the way, the collective I was referring to with cause was more of a team, you know, a team of people who are pushing your stuff, which is, which is really what you need anyway. You know, and I'm talking about your publicist, your, your, your marketing team, your manager, your whatever. He's got a really smart team of people. And I think Shepard is insanely smart, you know, but I don't know. Could he create that from scratch? I don't know if he could or not, and in Shepard's case, it doesn't really matter, but in other people's case, it's case to case. So 
Yeah, no, I see that. I sort of align visual arts with architecture, and an architect is seldom going to be the person who's actually laying right. the foundation and building the building. You, you ideate, and then you outsource. And so for me, in the case of Shepard or in the case of any of these people who are conceptually behind the work, then that to me is the artistry. And then whoever they have perform the actual making of the work, whether it be themselves or a team of other people, that does not erode my, the way that I, I view art and the way that I consume content. I'm a little bit more Hitchcock and Scorsese, and you're a little bit more Sofia Coppola. Hitchcock and Scorsese were deeply intertwined. I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like Sofia Coppola was like, Dad? You know what I mean? Like, just bring in the best people to do my shit. But, you know, there's, I mean, in a, in a, movie, in a movie setting, you've got a bunch of people who are, you know, it's a, it's a collective, it's a collaboration, but that's not art. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not visual art. So to me, that's the difference. But I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, we're, uh, I think we're really going to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>